Welcome to A Place in Between. If you've ever felt like you just don't quite belong anywhere, this is your place. The mission here is to look beyond simple answers and certainties and dive into the messy spaces of life. I'm your host, Rocky McCormick, the queen of messes and misfits. Hello, friends, and welcome back. Well, whether we like it or not, here we are in the thick of a presidential election season. As I record this podcast, we're in the middle of the Democratic National Convention, and the Republican National Convention is almost upon us. The commercials are relentless, the social media commentary is pervasive, and the quips and retorts are being slung faster than ever. Let's take a breath, especially for those of us who feel like the noisiest factions have left us without a voice at all. In this episode, I want to talk about that glamorous thing called social contract theory. I know, I know, but it's important. I want to talk about conscience formation and the danger of political absolutism. If that's even a word, we're just going to say it is. Anyway, if that doesn't scare you, Let's dig in. In a previous episode, I made a reference to my days on the high school debate team. And because I very quickly glossed over it in the interest of time and interest, I promised to revisit that experience. Today is your lucky day. True confessions. I, Rocky McCormick, was a giant nerd in high school if the whole desire to talk about social contract theory hadn't already tipped you off. As part of that persona, I spent a lot of my time in preparation as a Lincoln-Douglas debater. So what is Lincoln-Douglas debate, you ask? Or maybe you didn't ask, and I'm going to tell you anyway. Named and somewhat fashioned after the debates between Abraham Lincoln and Stephen Douglas in their bid for the Illinois Senate back in the day, Lincoln-Douglas debates focus on the conflicting values of social and philosophical issues, for example, by examining questions of morality, justice, democracy, etc. Typically, these debates concern themselves with deciding whether or not certain actions or um, certain states of affair are, are good or bad, right or wrong, moral or immoral. So trying to discern the best way forward when given a certain proposition or resolution, as it were. The reason I bring up this experience at all? Part of our preparation was the formulation of an argument both in favor of and against each proposition using philosophical and moral reasoning. Now, admittedly, this was done at a high school level, but it led me to read philosophers like Socrates, or Socrates, if you're a fan of Bill and Ted, Plato, Aristotle, Immanuel Kant, Ayn Rand, Thomas Hobbes, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and John Locke, among others. The other practice that stuck with me is the understanding that bits and pieces of equally valid philosophy, reasoning, and facts can be used to build arguments on both sides of an issue. While some might worry that this leads to a type of relativism, what it's done for me is grounded me in the pursuit of the bigger picture, that of a flourishing society. If we can agree on what we need for the big picture, we can work to understand why someone might have a different philosophy or roadmap on how to arrive there. Understanding hopefully leads to cooperation, and cooperation then to that desired flourishing. 
Oh, oh, I totally forgot. Part of the beginning of our debates, it was defining our terms. I guess that might be another lasting effect on me, if you've noticed in my podcasts. Anyway, all that aside, this leads me back to the social contract theories. I say theories because there are, as usual, more than one, and there is a certain development of theories throughout the centuries. But gaining an understanding of how people view their relationship to the larger society as a whole and the need for political life at all is another key factor in finding avenues of cooperation. The big question, how is it that people can be free and still live together peaceably? So let's start with the Greeks. Socrates and Plato both argued that citizens relinquished some of their freedom to create an ordered society. However, they disagreed on whether the motivation was altruistic or self-interested and political in nature. Socrates felt that we had a higher moral order, which naturally led us, because of the good of the soul, to choose the just action. Plato argued that it was self-preservation. And again, this is boiling it down to a very tiny nutshell, which could take years to, to dig into fully. So we're just going to start there and then fast forward a few centuries in the interest of time and my own sanity. Thomas Hobbes, in the 1600s, argues radically for his times that political authority and obligation are based on the individual self-interests of members of society who are, one, understood to be equal to one another, so there is an inherent equality of members of society, um, and then, two, with no single individual invested with any essential authority to rule over the rest. But at the same time, he maintained a conservative position that the monarch, because he was um, in a monarchy, which he called the sovereign, must be given absolute authority if society is to survive. So none, none of the people had authority over one another, but there was one absolute authority. According to Hobbes, the justification for any political obligation is that given men are naturally self-interested, but rational, they will choose to submit to the authority of a sovereign in order to be able to live in a civil society, which is conducive to their own interests. So he kind of takes Plato's view here. We subject ourselves to a sovereign. We give up some of our rights because it's in our best interest. Now, where Hobbes saw the need for a sovereign because he viewed the state of nature and our natural being as utter chaos, I don't know if anyone relates, um, John Locke, in the same era, advanced a slightly different understanding of our relationship to one another and the notion of a quote-unquote sovereign. To him, our natural state was governed by the law of nature, which is, in Locke's view, the basis for all morality given to us by God and commands that we not harm one another with regard to our life, health, liberty, or possessions. Sound familiar? It should. Anyway, getting back to Locke, because we all belong equally to God, and because we cannot take away that which is rightfully his, we are prohibited from harming one another. Property also plays an essential role in Locke's argument for the need for a civil government, and for the social contract that establishes that government. Property, in fact, is the linchpin of Locke's argument for the social contract because it's the protection of our property, including the property of our own bodies, so we're not talking simply possessions, 
but our persons as well. It is that protection that people seek when they decide to abandon full and complete freedom that we find in the state of nature. In addition, this isn't a political contract between individuals, but a moral contract between families for the care and raising of children. So interestingly, Locke asserts that the good of the society is really in the basis of the family, in the the relationship that families have to one another and to the society that they belong in. So Locke further explains that because the first law is the moral law, political society comes into being when individuals representing their families come together and hand over their individual power to um, to punish those who transgress against them, to have retribution, where they hand over that power over to the public power of a government. So we no longer have vengeance for ourselves, but we have laws that govern how people are punished for violating the contract that exists between people in a society. So that's all in the 1600s. Now fast forward almost a century, and Jean-Jacques Rousseau comes along with two distinct social contract theories. The one I want to talk about is the second one, which he calls his ideal theory of the social contract. You can read about it in his book, The Social Contract. Um, And it's meant to provide the means by which to alleviate the problems that modern society has created for us. So with modern society, we have abandoned our state of nature. We don't all live on our own um, in nature, but we've created families, tribes, communities, nations, And so in order to alleviate the problems that come from having to live peaceably with one another in these constructs, that is where the social contract comes in. Now, of course, remember the modern world he's talking about is in the 1700s. But what he says is that humans are essentially free, and we are completely free in the state of nature. But the, quote, progress of civilization with the creation of family clusters, developing into communities and societies, has required submitting to others for that freedom. Through our dependence on one another, and through resulting economic and social inequalities that arise from that and such. He asserts that it's not really desirable to return to the state of nature where it's everyone for themselves. The point and purpose of politics is to restore freedom to the individual thereby reconciling us to who we truly and essentially are with how we live together in society. So this is the purpose of politics. And this is where we leave off the conversation about social contract theory for almost 200 years, or maybe over 200 years. In the 1970s, John Rawls enters the scene with even more abstract considerations of the social contract and develops two principles of justice, one being the distribution of civil liberties and the other being social and economic goods. Um, Anyway, stating basically, if we're going to boil it down, that civil liberties always come before social and economic goods. So the whole point of discussing social contract theory at all is to really kind of get back to basics about why we even discuss politics at all, why politics is important, why the church might think politics is important. And we see in the development of these theories over time, just exactly how we have come to understand the necessity of, of political theory and the purpose of politics being the balance of the individual with the balance of society. And how we view that is going to play a great part in how we view our own role within the political process, how we view the government's role in our life, 
and why there is not just one way forward. Even the founding fathers had a conflict of ideas in in how the the principles that shaped the nation should be applied. We ended up with a two-party system because they couldn't agree on exactly how we should move forward. And while initially that seemed to be a conflict for them, they came to realize that it was actually the best way forward to be able to bring certain ideas to light, to be able to discuss their merit, and to be able to then contemplate and discern which would best serve the individuals that made up the society that they were in. And so we arrived at a two-party system. Now, I'd like to theorize that we need more than two parties or that we are long overdue for a shift in our political parties, but that is a conversation for another day. I know I spent a lot of time going over theory and the development of social contract, but I do feel it's really important to get an understanding of it, if only because it gives us an insight as to what the founders took into consideration as they imagined a brand new form of government for our country. You can see many pieces of the theories that I talked about, some verbatim, in our founding documents. It gives us language to consider the basis for political dialogue now, or at least to understand what it is that the founders envisioned and how we might best serve that legacy. Beyond philosophical theories, though, as Christians, we have an entirely different consideration. Not only do we consider the peaceful existence of a society of peoples, but we take into consideration the flourishing of the human persons who compose them. For that, I want to turn our attention to the social teaching of the Catholic Church. I'm not going to tackle the entirety of our social doctrine here because it would take years, but I do want to take a look at the intersection of our social teaching and political participation. Thankfully, the bishops of the United States have created a resource in an effort to help the faithful, us, form our consciences to participate in the political life of this country. So let's talk first about what it is not. This document and any direction from our bishops is not and ought not to be an endorsement of any party, platform, or candidate. Let's instead turn to the document called Forming Consciences for Faithful Citizenship. It draws from scripture, from the catechism, from papal documents, and the whole treasury of our faith to address issues of our time and to help us look at political life as a whole spectrum of interconnected issues rather than our solitary pet passions. So in this document, the bishops remind us that here in the United States that we share many blessings and strengths as a nation, including a tradition of religious freedom and political participation. However, we also face serious challenges that are both political and moral in nature, but this has always been so, and as Catholics we are called to participate in the public life in a manner that's consistent with the mission of our Lord. As Pope Francis teaches, an authentic faith always involves a deep desire to change the world, to transmit values, and to leave this earth somehow better than we found it. The earth is our common home, and all of us are brothers and sisters. If indeed the just ordering of society and of the state is a central responsibility of politics, the church cannot and must not remain on the sidelines in the fight for justice. Now the bishops don't exist in a vacuum. None of our our church leaders exist in a vacuum. They understand that the political realities of our nation present us with a lot of opportunities and challenges, and so they provide some instruction for us. 
the bishops remind us that the challenges we face are at the heart of public life and at the center of the pursuit of the common good. The challenges we face are intertwined and inseparable, regardless of the issue. As we talk about the formation of conscience and the corresponding moral responsibility of each Catholic to hear, to receive, and to act upon the Church's teaching in uh, our own journey of formation of our conscience, um, foremost among those teachings are the four basic principles of Catholic social doctrine. The dignity of the human person, the common good, subsidiarity, and solidarity. And that's taken from the compendium of the social doctrine of the church. So once we have that foundation, we're better able to evaluate several things, not just candidates, but policy positions, party platforms, candidate promises, and actions in light of the gospel and the moral and social teaching of the church with the goal, again, that end goal of building a better world of the flourishing of the human person within the confines of a society. The bishops also remind us that it's important to remember that church teaching is coherent and rests on a comprehensive vision of the dignity of the human person. They caution that as we go through this document, the particular judgments within the document may fall at various points along the political spectrum, but the foundational principles that guide the teachings of the bishops should not be ignored in any case, nor used selectively in order to serve partisan interests. We are encouraged to read the document as a whole and to form our whole conscience as we look at the bigger picture of how we best participate in the political life of our country for the good of all the people in it. I want to focus in now on numbers 34 and 35 in the first part of the document, because this is where they address the difficulty we as Catholics have in figuring out how to vote. The only direction the bishops give us, and this is important because we'll see a lot of publications come out that tell us we can or cannot vote for certain candidates, that to be good Catholics, we must vote a certain way. But the bishops are clear that we form our conscience in this way. A Catholic cannot vote for a candidate who favors a policy promoting an intrinsically evil act. And here is the list of intrinsically evil acts such as abortion, euthanasia, assisted suicide, subjecting workers or the poor to subhuman living conditions, redefining marriage in ways that violate its essential meaning, or racist behavior, if the voter's intent is to support that position. So we cannot vote for candidates who support policies that are inherently evil because we support the policies that are inherently evil. At the same time, a voter should not use a candidate's opposition to an intrinsic evil to justify indifference or inattentiveness to other important moral issues involving human life and dignity. So because a candidate opposes one of the intrinsically evil acts listed above, but perhaps pays no mind to the others, is not sufficient reason to vote for that candidate. Number 35 says that there may be times when a Catholic who rejects a candidate's unacceptable position even on policies promoting an intrinsically evil act may reasonably decide to vote for that candidate for other morally grave reasons, which may be that they hold better policy positions on the other acts that are listed. Voting this way would only be permissible for truly grave moral reasons, not to advance narrow interests or partisan preferences or to ignore a fundamental moral evil. 
So in doing so, we have to recognize that the candidate is still in favor of an intrinsically evil act. And I'll talk about this in in a little bit too. I think part of what we miss in our political life is that we are especially vocal when it comes to election years, but disarmingly quiet the rest of the time as a whole. So we've looked at social contract theory. We've looked at what the bishops have to say about how we form our moral conscience, as well as how we discern who it is we'll cast our vote for in any election, be it the presidential one, be it House of Representatives, be it the Senate, be it the local city council. But what does all of this tell us about living in this political space today? First, if anything, I think it kind of exemplifies one of the inspirations behind the title of this podcast, A Place in Between. We should see clearly that we are truly as disciples in a place between left and right, between Republican and Democrat. There is not a disciples platform, so we are called on to discern the best way forward using the guidance of the church and our understanding of how we interact with one another within civilized society. Social contract theory, anyone? Yep, still a nerd. But truly, if we look back at the list of intrinsically evil acts and we take a look at where the political parties stand on all of those, we truly are caught in a place in between. We truly, truly are. There is no perfect party and there is no perfect candidate. So we're left to discern who will best govern in a way that leads most to the flourishing of the human person within our society. And for this reason, we should be extremely wary of those who seek political absolutes. By offering political absolutes, we impose our understanding, our discernment on others and reduce conscience formation to definitive partisan conclusions. For instance, when a priest comes out and says that the only way to vote is to vote for X person, that negates our ability to have those conversations with the Lord and to arrive at those positions based on our discernment and through the voice of the Holy Spirit. The only absolute at this moment is that our current options stink. Anyone who tries to tell you that you are a good or a bad Christian because you voted for a Republican or a Democrat is wrong. The bishops clearly tell us that our conscience is formed by not cooperating with intrinsically evil acts. And as we've already covered, neither party has a cornerstone on that. And so we take a look not only at political party platforms, not only at candidate positions, not only at candidate promises, but at actions and their results. And so it is a complex process of discernment that cannot be made over Twitter, that cannot be made in a 10-page pamphlet, and that truly requires us to be engaged in political discussion and discernment more than just every two, four, six years. And that brings me to my third point. Political participation is a moral obligation for disciples because it shapes how our society functions. Political participation is how we ensure our social contract truly operates on just moral principles. Our moral obligation is not for political sparring on social media. In fact, it's not even just election year participation. Perhaps our greatest obligation in the political process is what happens after the inauguration, after the election, when we hold our servants accountable, when we write letters, when we make phone calls, when we advocate for just policymaking, 
when after we hold our nose and vote, we remind them that their policies stink. We have to be involved in the daily conversations, not just the campaigns. We need to be involved on the local level, the state level, and the federal level. This isn't just about fancy slogans or flashy commercials. It isn't about rallies. It is about what goes on day in and day out within the halls of government at every level. At the end of the day, when it comes down to how we figure out what to do in this place in between, in this contentious political season, the last thing I want to offer you is this. No matter how someone tells you you have to vote, at the end of the day, your vote is between you and God. Only the two of you know your motivation. Only the two of you know your heart. Only the two of you can discern your conscience. Others can help you form it. Others can provide you valuable feedback. But at the end of the day, it is there that the judgment lies, not on someone's Twitter feed. That's all for this episode of A Place in Between. Here's to hearing more of our stories in the hope of a fuller understanding of this beautiful picture that's being painted in this place in between. If you want to be part of the conversation, follow us on Facebook at A Place in Between Podcast. Do you have a story that you'd like to share? Contact me through our Facebook page. <music>